MSW Media. Impeachment's now in the Judiciary Committee, and a federal judge ruled Trump's advisors aren't immune from subpoena. What happens next? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. I'm usually joined by my friend Patty Vasquez. She is busy on the campaign trail, and so I'm going to bring in our guest, Watergate prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst Jill Weinbanks in just a minute. But first, I want to thank our patrons who brought this episode to you. With special thanks to Michelle Dew, Eric DeWurst, Edie, James Fromeyer, Jamie Gordon, Steve Hungsberg, and an anonymous patron. You can become a patron too on our website, ontopicpodcast.com, all one word. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So now let's bring in our guest. Jill Weinbanks was a Watergate prosecutor and famously, uh, you know, a, a woman a prosecutor and a pioneer during a time when many women um, were excluded from the legal profession. After that, she had a distinguished legal career, not only working in-house, but being one of the top officials in the Illinois Attorney General's office. Now, you probably know her as an MSNBC legal analyst. Uh, I met her myself in the TV studio many times back when I was on that network, and I am very excited to bring her here on the podcast tonight. So let's bring in Jill. Jill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Renato. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's, it was such a pleasure meeting you um, so many times and getting to know you in the TV studio because you're like living history. Uh, and, and I think, I mean that, I think that, you know, that's, you bring such an interesting perspective to what we're going through right now. Uh, you know, for many, for many of us, Watergate is something we've read about, we've heard about, and for a lot of people, even who are alive at the time, it's something that they caught glimpses of on television or in the newspaper, but for you, it's something that you lived. And, you know, I find one thing I find interesting is there's been a lot of debate lately, about public opinion and, you know, has it shifted or not? And uh, I'm curious about what your thoughts are on that. And given your, you know, the perspective you have historically of seeing a shift over time in the Watergate era. Well, let me start by saying that I think that the actions of President Trump are so much worse than what Richard Nixon did. And that takes into account um, even that he actually thinks he wasn't charged with an impeachment, but he interfered in the Vietnam War um, in order to help his campaign. So I think that's a pretty terrible thing. But what Donald Trump is doing is so brazen and so outrageous that it, it mounts uh, to the same uh, terrible thing that Richard Nixon did. 
And in terms of the actual underlying crime of the Watergate case, which was a burglary of the Democratic National Committee, as opposed to an electronic break-in of the DNC by the Trump campaign or by the Russians on behalf of the Trump campaign, um, for their benefit, uh, I would say that, you know, the electronic is just as bad or the same as, but that what is going on now with Ukraine certainly tops it. And the obstruction of justice in terms of the stonewalling of Congress now is much worse than the stonewalling that Richard Nixon did. Richard Nixon stonewalled a criminal investigation. This president is stonewalling not just the investigation of the Russia investigation and now of Ukraine and what happened there, but he is preventing any normal oversight activity by Congress. And we have a constitution that's based on a tripartite government with equal powers and checks and balances. And if the Congress cannot do oversight, that throws off the entire system of our constitution. So I consider that to be very serious. Now, going back to your question about public opinion, Richard Nixon won a landslide in the popular vote and in the Electoral College. He won 49 states. That is completely different than what happened in the 20th election. And he had, Richard Nixon had huge support. He was very popular until the facts came out, and then he lost the Republican support. All Americans paid attention to the facts. And one of the big differences is that during Watergate, there were three networks, NBC, ABC, CBS, and they all had the same facts. There might be disagreement on what the facts meant, but nobody disagreed about the facts. Here, if you listen to MSNBC or any of the mainstream media, you get what I consider to be an accurate representation of fact witness testimony. If you listen to Fox News, you get commentary that has no relationship to actual facts. And that's a serious problem because people listening to those other channels actually believe when Donald Trump says, don't believe what you see or hear, believe only me. And that creates a problem because public opinion cannot be accurately measured if people don't have the facts. If people would watch the testimony if they would see the actual witnesses and judge for themselves in the same way that they would for a trial, I think Americans, including all the very strong Trump supporters, would see that the facts are very clear. Today's Chicago Tribune, um, and when I say today, I'm talking about on Tuesday, the 26th of November, the Tribune said, and this is a very conservative paper, that the facts are clear. There's proof of a abuse of power by President Trump. Their only argument is, well, but he shouldn't be impeached for it. He should only be censured. I disagree with that conclusion, but I'm pointing to this because even a conservative newspaper has to admit facts prove that he abused his power, and he did it for his own personal political benefit. Yeah, I would say a lot of the 
I would say smarter conservatives came to that conclusion very fairly early on. You know, Peggy Noonan uh, did, Rich Lowry, uh, Andrew McCarthy, uh, even Tucker Carlson, who I have very strong di- differences of opinion with, um, you know, and he I, he's one of those people spreading disinformation. He wrote very early on that Trump should just admit that what he did was wrong and argue that it wasn't impeachable. And it's interesting, though, to see. I agree with you, Jill. Uh, to me, um, I am very concerned about the fact that we no longer, you know, are dealing with the same set of facts. You know, I recently was at an event uh, with many lawyers, and I had some uh, Trump-supporting lawyers who came up to me and were very eager to share their views with me about impeachment. And it was clear to me that they did not um, know a lot of the basic facts. They were really, um, you know, very uh, ignorant of just, you know, uh, you know, sort of the obvious things that anybody who was really paying attention to the news would. And it's because they're getting news from a network that. Just yesterday uh, was, you know, there was uh, Alan Dershowitz was saying that a, a president, the president of the United States is more powerful than a king under the Constitution, which is absolutely false. That's a lie. Um, that, in fact, our Constitution was set up different, you know, set up to put limits in the power of the president. But, you know, you also have people like Tucker Carlson saying he's rooting for Russia in the dispute with Ukraine. So really, uh, you know, we are, they are getting disinformation. And I wonder in this age whether a removal from office could ever be possible. What would it take to move sort of the enough of the core base of the Republican Party to have uh, two-thirds? Given where things are, I have very little hope that the Republicans will actually pay attention to facts. You have some of them have already said I don't care what the facts are. I'm not even going to read them. That's Lindsey Graham. And I'm sure that there are others who are similarly situated. And so if you don't pay attention to the facts, then there is no hope. Um, I think it is still worth proceeding through the impeachment and presenting the facts as they come out because I think that voters may be influenced, that people who were borderline of, yes, I like his policies, but I can't stand his moral code, uh, and this is going too far, or veterans who were very upset about what he did in terms of um, Syria and the Kurds, I think that they may be influenced to say, that's enough, I'm done, and so that the vote will be affected by it. But we need to have the full facts out in order for that to happen. So I'm all for proceeding with the fact-finding and the presentation, um, and I think that's where we are. I, I also, if I could, just um, point to um, Paula Duncan, who was a juror in the Manafort trial, and who said, I am a loyal Trump supporter. I think the whole investigation is a hoax and a witch hunt. But as a juror, I heard the evidence, and I voted to convict him on all 18. 18- counts based on the facts I heard in court. And I'm hoping that there are people in America who will still come to that same conclusion um, once they hear all the facts, because the facts are really very, very clear. There's no question that what he, what he did and that it is an abuse of power, that it's probably criminal. I just heard some Republican arguing, well, he didn't pay money 
to the Ukrainians, and they didn't do anything in response. Well, they didn't do anything because he got caught and had to release the money anyway, and he did ask for money. He asked for it in the form of announcing a valuable thing to him, announcing an investigation of his chief rival at the time, Mr. Biden, and that was done. He didn't even care if the investigation was done. He just wanted to have it announced so that he could sully his opponent and help his own election. And that's just, that's totally against our laws, totally against every principle that we hold dear about a free election. Yeah, I I have to say, um, you know, I think some of this is really, you know, partly a semantics thing where particularly since uh, Democrats have used the term bribery, I think Republicans are trying to, you know, find technical reasons to say it's not. I mean, to me, I don't, I think it's not important to get too hung up on the wording of it. I mean, you know, you talked about an abuse of power earlier. I think it's, this is clearly that. Um, and the reality of the situation, um, you know, I think that the reality of the situation is such as you pointed out in the beginning that this is, the facts are more or less provable. You know, I think, you know, you you said, well, you know, you supported going forward with this. I think the the case for going forward with this, you know, partly, certainly there may be a political case. I'm not a expert on that. But I would say that, you know, it is certainly the right thing to do uh, to the, you know, to the extent that you believe that this sets a precedent. In other words, you know, you, you know, a century from now or 50 years from now, people are going to look back at this time and judge whether or not Congress took action here. Uh, and here is the Congress of the United States saying that this is this conduct is not acceptable and laying out the facts for the American people. And I, don't, I think that can be valuable regardless of the outcome. I, I agree completely. And I feel even more strongly than I think you're saying is that if we do nothing, it sends a message to all future presidents that this behavior is acceptable that there's no accountability for it, that the president wins on his argument that he is a king, that he is above the law, that he can do anything he wants, that he is powerful enough, that Congress can do nothing to hold him accountable. And that is not how our government needs to run. Um, so I, I think it's very important that he be held accountable for what he has clearly done. I mean, nobody debating the facts. During the entire impeachment inquiry, all the witnesses, the Republicans never once challenged the honesty and truthfulness of the facts. They tried to divert attention to other things that have nothing to do with what did the president do and when did he do it. And I think that that is just says everything that you need to know is that the facts are clear the president has violated, and, and by the way, I, I think bribery is not a strong enough word. I would say that what we're talking about is extortion, that as an organized crime prosecutor, I did a lot of Hobbs Act cases, and I would say this is, if, if he were a mafia Don instead of Don Trump, um, that he would be guilty of extortion under the, under the Hobbs Act. You know, it's interesting. I will tell you, I'm not as big of a fan of using these terms extortion or bribery. I'll tell you, that's a difference of opinion I have because I'm not so sure about that. You know, I don't know if this fits that that definition. I guess from my perspective, this conduct is so wrongful. 
And it's so, for to me, the way I look at it, Jill, is that it is so beyond what our criminal justice system ever can, contemplates. I mean, we don't contemplate the president of the United States like trying to shake down a foreign government to right. <laughs> do exactly. something. I mean, it's just not even what I can't even imagine. You know, if I would, this is this file was put on my desk. It's just not something the criminal justice system typically handles. And so, hey, but, but he asked you something, Donato. I mean, you're making a semantic argument, which is you don't like the term bribery or extortion. That's fine because under the Constitution. You don't get impeached for committing a crime under Title 18. Right. You get impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors, which the House Judiciary Committee needs to define, as they did during Watergate. During Watergate, the House Judiciary Committee started with looking at what constitutes a high crime and misdemeanor, period. That was how they started. And I think that's where we are now, is you have to define it. And that's that. Very but important. it doesn't matter words you use. It is wrong. And that's why I was using the term abuse of power, because yes. that's a, a general category that clearly applies, as does contempt of Congress, when he stonewalls all production of documents, all production of witnesses. You had a court decision yesterday. I've lost track of time. Was it today or yesterday? Yesterday, yes. Today, um, that says that he is not a king, and he cannot tell witnesses that they shouldn't show up. They have to show up. And I, I think that we're starting to see the courts set the tone for what is wrong with this president and why we can't let him get away with it. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, 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 to me, abuse of power is the perfect example, a perfect label for this, because he literally is abusing his power as president to help himself using our tax dollars essentially to feather his own nest. And by the way, he didn't have the power to stop the aid anyway. It's a piece of power for multiple reasons because he didn't even have the power to not, you know, send this aid over that Congress had appropriated. Congress had appropriated the money. It's their their money to appropriate. He did do that. Yeah. He had it held up until he got caught. Well, and right. once he got caught, the jig was over, then it started, the money was released. Right, my only point and is that he had, no, he had no legal authority to be doing that. That is true. Yeah. But that's, that's an abuse of his power. Correct. Because he used power, not his legal or constitutional uh, authority. Exactly. He used his blatant power to kowtow people in the same way he has kowtowed all Republicans in the Congress. Exactly right. I, that's exactly right. That's what, I just mean it's abuse of power in two senses. One, that he was using public our public tax dollars and appropriated money from Congress to help himself versus helping the American people and our country. But separately, he was doing something that was outside of his constitutional powers as president. He was taking money that was appropriated by Congress and holding it up, um, and he shouldn't have been. Right, and I go further because not only was he not doing it in our interest but only for his own political interest, he was doing it contrary to our interests. Right. He put risk, not only an ally, Ukraine, who was in a hot war with a foreign hostile power that we share in common, which is Russia. And if it has been said that if Ukraine wasn't fighting Russia, that we would have to be fighting them. And so he's putting in danger everyone's lives by allowing that to happen. And he withheld necessary 
aid. He, and even just if we limit it to the phone call and the meeting, that alone, he, which he clearly withheld, um, is, is a danger because to Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, he needed the public support. He needed to be able to stand up to Russia and say, look, I have the support of the United States. And by not getting the meeting that he needed, he was getting the opposite. So, I, I mean, we have to keep in mind that it's not just withholding the military aid money that was appropriated, and which was, today we learned that two people from OMD resigned because they felt that the withholding of the money was a violation of law. Yeah, I think that, you know, this is an important thing, and I think it's an important focus that we should have, is, you know, you mentioned a moment ago, uh, Jill, that we're not looking at use of Title 18, that's just for everyone's edification as the federal criminal code. Your point is that this isn't a, about le- you know legalisms one way or the other. What it's about is, you know, was there a constitutional impeachable offense here? And abuse of power, by the way, was one of the Nixon uh, articles of impeachment that were drawn up by the Judiciary Committee. It was also an article of impeachment that was drawn up against Bill Clinton. It happened to be voted down, but the Republicans drew that up. It's, it, I guess my point is both political parties have tried to impeach presidents for abuse of power because it is, I think it is, there's no, can be no dispute that that is an impeachable offense. Well, and let me point out there were two other articles of impeachment approved against Richard Nixon. Besides that, there was an obstruction of justice charge, which was clearly laid out in the obstruction of justice trial. And there was contempt of Congress or obstruction of Congress by not producing documents that were subpoenaed by holding them back. And so all three articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon could be used against Donald Trump. They all apply. Well, let's talk about that last one. I have a a listener, John Mitchell, who asked, if the House includes contempt of Congress as a a count, how strong is that case? Can't Trump simply argue that these cases, quote, are being reviewed by the courts and we expect a favorable outcome. Does this charge pass muster from the perspective of our founders? This is uh, one of our listeners. How would you respond to that? I would say that his legal argument is so without any merit that you cannot, with a straight face, make that argument. The court decision makes it absolutely clear that there is no fundamental basis for the argument that he has absolute immunity or that he can uh, withhold everything from the Congress. And um, I think that with that in mind, it's hard to see how you can make a legitimate argument saying, well, I was just waiting for the courts to rule. He wasn't. He was acting, saying, and, and he's acting contrary to, for example, the Supreme Court decision in U.S. v. Nixon. He's acting contrary to that, um, and you just can't make that with a straight face. I just don't see how you can. Yeah, you know, one thing that I want to I want to draw a couple distinctions here. So first is because I've this is a subject I've thought about. You know, and I went back and read the articles of impeachment in in the Nixon um, in the Nixon uh, case in the Watergate. And there, they included a lot of things that you wouldn't ordinarily charge in court, like misleading and lying to the public and so on. And the point there was essentially, you know, they were holding the president to a different standard. They were saying that, you know, by his public statements, he was 
trying to um, you know hold up their uh, you know their ability and their impede their ability to um, you know conduct their investigation. And here, what I would say is, for Trump's activity here. I agree with you, uh, um, Jill, that certain of his positions and the, what comes to mind to me is the letter that was drafted by uh, by Pat Cipollone, the uh, White House counsel, uh, supposedly, whether it was dictated by Trump or he was heavily involved, you know, he was involved in the writing of that, you know, it essentially took the position that the impeachment inquiry was itself unconstitutional and illegitimate and therefore that they would not – um, you know, cooperate with it in any way. I mean, that is not a legal position. That is not a legal argument. That is essentially just saying the law doesn't apply to me and I don't recognize our constitutional processes. To me, that is impeachable. I think that is something that the, con- the Congress can say that is obstruction of Congress to take that position and essentially order witnesses, including people who did appear, like Gordon Sondland was was told not to appear, for example, uh, and others were encouraged not to appear. I, I think that is where I would focus my attention. But certainly, some of Trump's statements, for example, his statements to witnesses, uh, like um, you know his statement to you know to Ambassador Hill and so forth, you know the, all of that could be included. And I think the the really what Congress is making there it's a broader point, which is that the president here has been trying to undermine and undercut their investigation of this matter. It, I agree with you completely. Uh- it's all true. And it, he has gone so far um, that it can't be, it doesn't pass the red face test. You can't say it without being embarrassed. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, another another uh, uh, listener had asked, a Jewel, had asked, you know, she wants to know why on earth nothing has happened to people who have ignored ignored subpoenas? How are they still walking around? And I'll answer this, and I'll and I'd be interested in your perspective as well, Jill, on this. You know, my perspective on that is that, you know, for some of these people like Don McGahn, they have gone to court and they've tried to seek, you know, a judge's guidance on it and so forth. You know, those people to me are playing a delay game because they don't want to actually appear, but they've they're going to court, so they have, I would say, a a reason why they that they can point to for why they haven't complied yet. For other people who've been thumbing their nose um, at Congress, you know, part of the issue is just Congress's enforcement mechanism. You know, they don't have uh, the marshals or the police force or the FBI that um, the executive branch does. And they're counting on the fact that the executive, these witnesses are counting on the fact that the executive branch is not going to lift a finger because Trump, uh, you know, and Barr controlled the Justice Department. uh, And they're not going to be enforcing uh, congressional subpoenas. Congress technically has the power to enforce its own and the decision, uh, its own subpoenas. And the the judge yesterday mentioned that uh, in her decision, Judge Jackson. But as a practical matter, they don't really have an enforcement arm that's equipped to do it. They don't have and they don't have facilities that are equipped to house people for any length of time. So it would really be something that would uh, potentially uh, be very difficult for them to do. What is your take? Well, first of all, in the past, Congress has had the marshals arrest people, and they have housed them in a hotel. Um, So it's possible, but clearly our legal system is based on the assumption that, number one, people will abide by the law, and two, that there will be the Department of Justice to enforce them. And here, where you have control of the executive branch 
including the Department of Justice, in the person who's violating the law, and where they have said, we will do nothing, we will absolutely not enforce this, there is very little that Congress can do. And the only thing that you can do is to hope that in the election, people go, that's just not right. And I'm not voting for him again. I voted for him the first time, but this is not a government that I want to see in power anymore. And so it is very, very sad um, that you would be stuck with civil contempt instead of a criminal contempt. Um, although if you put the price tag high enough on a civil contempt and, you know, the penalty was, you know, $10,000 a day, $20,000 a day, uh, people might think twice about ignoring the, the court. And then you'd have to have the president actually going in and saying, I'm exerting some recognizable privilege, which so far he hasn't done. He hasn't claimed executive privilege. He hasn't claimed attorney-client privilege. He's claimed total immunity, which is a non-existent thing. And so I think it's really too bad, and I hope the courts will hold him and the attorney general who is allowing this accountable. Yeah, I've the way I've described it, Jill, uh, whether it's to journalists or you know to the viewers or listeners, is just I regard those arguments as a delay tactic, but not an actual legal argument. You know, there's no legal argument or support for this absolute immunity uh, notion. It's just something that they do to give themselves some reason to delay. And, and unfortunately, it's working. It is right. things and. They're, you know, unless they're held accountable by the voters, and that would mean a massive turnout to get rid of the um, House and Senate Republicans who are allowing this. And I think the way the Republicans behaved in the public hearings uh, was really disgraceful. And also the false statements that they're making, that they had no right to question witnesses, that it was done in secret in a chamber in the basement, which is simply, I mean, the physical location may have been the basement, but the Republicans were there. They had the same rights as Democrats to ask questions. And you don't have to call witnesses who have nothing to do with the allegations. That would be like calling in um, the manicurist for the burglar to see whether their nails were clean. That has nothing to do with whether they committed burglary. And neither does the whistleblower, and neither do any of the witnesses, uh, whatever Hunter Biden may have done that looks bad, it has nothing to do with what the president did. Nothing. Yeah, I, I will say, um, you know, I think that a lot of these process arguments generally fall flat, too. I mean, those are the arguments you make. Uh, I'll say this now as somebody who's a def- current defense attorney. Uh, those are the arguments you make when you don't have arguments in the fact or the law. Well, they don't have the law on their side. Exactly. You know, regarding the um, regarding um, you know what what the articles of impeachment would be. You know, Tom Bateman, another listener, asked. You know, he's seen these long lists of potential articles of impeachment. He said, "Wouldn't it be more compelling to have a very long list of articles of impeachment rather than a very short list chosen so as not to confuse people?" I'll let you answer that. I will say just so you know where I stand, John. I'm on the short. Uh, side. I think that keeping your story simple is important, uh, As a, just I say that as a trial lawyer. Uh, what's your take? Um, I'm inclined to think that something that's understandable is better 
Um, I think you can do specifications within, for example, if you had a obstruction of justice charge, you could put a lot of things, details, um, specific actions, sort of the what you would consider the overt acts in furtherance of a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the charge is conspiracy. There's only one charge. But when you spell it out and say this is the acts they took to bring that about, you can spell out a lot of things and put in the details that will be understandable to people. I think being understandable is really important. I think the Mueller case was not presented in a way that people ever really followed. Um, So it's important that this be one where people can follow it. Yeah, I agree. And that's part of the reason that I'm not eager to put too much of the Mueller stuff in here. I know a lot of people are. Oh, I think you have to put in at least some of the Mueller stuff for several reasons. One is that otherwise you're giving him a pass on it. And that's, that's very bad. I don't think you can do that. Um, and I think because it is really wrong what, what he did, people need to uh, know that, and we can't allow that as a model for future presidents to think that they can do the same things because there's no accountability for it. So I think some of them, you know, you don't have to put in 10 specifications, but, you know, five, you know, give some examples. Uh, and juries understand it. I mean, that's what we had. Um, we had hundreds of examples of wrongdoing in furtherance of the conspiracy um, in the Watergate case. And people understood it. That it wasn't that hard. So um, I would say that's where we're at and we have to be there, period. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about giving them a pass on it. I think that's a, that's to me, the best argument to, for including the Mueller stuff is that, um, you know, otherwise you're giving him a pass. I mean, or I, I will say that when I was a prosecutor, uh, it was often the case that I had to make these judgment calls about what to charge people for. And there were some defendants I could charge them for a hundred things. And I picked three or four or five out and picked those things and, you know, got it done uh, because, you know, the rest of it would come in at sentencing uh, and would the judge would consider it once, once he or she imposed the sentence. I would say here, you know, I guess my take on it would be you can include the the prior obstruction of justice of the Mueller investigation as sort of an example to show how we know his state of mind. I mean, you can kind of talk through, well, you know, we already know that the, that Trump knows all about obstruction of justice and he did it before. And this shows why we know he's this shows his intent and what he's doing here. I just wouldn't make it a huge public focus. I just think in terms of public hearings and so forth, you know, they've already tried to do that and they've done some of that. To me, that's a confusing story to retell. Uh, and I would focus on this fairly straightforward Ukraine. Part of the reason that it's a, a hard story to tell is that, for example, Don McGahn hasn't testified. Don McGahn right. is a major witness to the obstruction and he is being withheld by the president. He's also being withheld by heaven only knows what is motivating him. I would think that as an attorney, he would come forward and recognize that he has to tell the truth. I can't believe um, that, and, and someone wrote to me who served in the Marines with his, I think, grandfather, maybe his, mm-hmm. I guess it was his father, and who said he was one of the bravest men that he knew. And he was hoping that Don McGahn would show the same 
bravery, and obviously he has clearly not done that. Well, you know, this is what I would say with Don McGahn. I mean, I, I put him in a different bucket than a lot of people in the Trump administration because when the chips were down, he was unwilling to do certain things that were evil, right, like firing Mueller. He's just yeah. like, you know, I'm going to pack up my desk. Uh, you know, I'm a real lawyer. I take notes. I, I do my I'm – not, I'm not one of your stooges. Um, I give him credit for that. He told the truth to Robert Mueller. I give him credit for that as well. I think that the, the reality, though, is Don McGahn's a Republican operative. He wants to continue to be somebody who is in the Republican camp going forward. He doesn't want to be seen as somebody who's helping the Democrats. And so he's going to do whatever legal maneuvering he's going to do to try to delay things so he doesn't have to be a, a witness that the Democrats call. And that's the reality of it. And one thing I will say to people, because, you know, like we had that earlier question, Jill, from a listener, like, hey, uh, you know, will people go to jail all the time for, for subpoenas? You know, I will say as somebody who practices law, that's my main job. Uh, and part of the reason if you don't see me on Twitter or television on certain days, it's because I'm in court. Um, but I, I will say that a lot of times people don't respond to subpoenas right away. They make all sorts of legal arguments and motions and dispute. Now, sometimes it's true. Trump is just, there's no argument, there's no motion, and there's no privilege. It's just, you know, you know him declaring he's above the law. But with someone like Don McGahn, he's using the legal system the way lawyers do uh, to get what he wants. I don't, I don't, I think I, I agree with you that it would be great if he showed some courage, but I put him in a different bucket than people like, you know, Mick Mulvaney or, or, or whoever, or Donald Trump and, and people like that. I, I, I mean, I agree that he did the right thing at one moment in time, but that doesn't end the, the uh, obligations that he has to the justice system. I think that he has some additional obligations that he's not fulfilling and that I wish he would. Yeah, I, I will say, um, you know, I wish that there were more people who showed some courage in terms of coming forward. And, you know, the reality is we have not seen much courage um, during the Trump administration. It's been interesting. We've certainly seen courage from some of these people like Ambassador Hill and Sondland and Taylor, who certainly came forward and told the truth. Uh, and Sondland, I don't know if I'd put completely in that category, but at least he was willing to 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 say what happened and answer questions. I give him credit for that much. Um, but, uh, I, you know, certainly Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. But I definitely have to say, you know, we the courage has been lacking, particularly amongst elected officials. And I think, you know, what elected officials, part of what happened was, Jill, is that people in Congress saw what happened to the corkers and flakes of the world when they even mildly criticized Trump. They got ostracized by the Republican Party and, they decided, you know, forget it. They're, they weren't going to do that. They weren't going to put themselves, you know, outside of uh, the Republican uh, mainstream. They want to keep getting elected. And, you know, for a lot of these politicians, getting reelected is more important than, than standing up uh, against the president uh, when he's doing something that's wrong. And it's just unfortunate. But that's really where the Republican Party is right now. Yes, I, I quite agree. Well, let me ask you one last question uh, because it's a it's a question a lot of listeners had, Jill. Which is, can we do we expect in the Senate that that there's going to be in a Senate trial that people who have not been willing to testify or able to testify in the House impeachment inquiry will show up in the Senate trial? I'm curious what your take is on that. There's been some people speculating that because the Chief Justice is presiding that 
you know, Senate Democrats or House Democrats who as impeachment managers are going to be making these motions and getting the chief justice to rule to bring in witnesses. I'm curious what your take is. Um, I don't actually have an opinion on that. The, the issue is, obviously, they don't have anything helpful to the president to say, because if they did, they would have already testified. He would have had them testify. He would have used them as witnesses. Um, since they didn't testify, I'm assuming, and I think this is how we live our lives, people make these judgments, is that he clearly would be incriminated by them, um, that the Republicans will make sure that they don't testify. Now, if there's a court decision uh, that precedes it, that makes it absolutely clear they can't keep this nonsense up, um, then maybe they will. Um, and how the powers of Justice Roberts in conducting this trial are very unclear. Um, mm -hmm. They aren't set out in the Constitution. They aren't set out in any rules. So it's hard to know how he will handle things and how much um, authority he will try to um, exercise. And it's not clear how much power Congress has to override him. Um, but I fear that it may be that they can override almost anything that he does. So, you know, we have to keep that in mind. And they are allowed to be biased. Um, th that's an accepted fact of impeachment. You know, we'll just have to accept that as being, you know, a reality. Yeah, I have to say, um, you know, I have no, you know, legal opinion on that as well. It's just it's something like you said, not well defined, and I'm not an expert on Senate rules uh, or on or on sort of how, you know, historical impeachments have uh, been conducted. Although we certainly had some of those here on the podcast, like Lawrence Tribe. I, I will just say though that you know my view of the matter, just in terms of my gut, uh, from is that. You know, since uh, Mitch McConnell is going to control the Senate, and he's the ultimately, you know, you know, him and his his party are going to be the ones setting the ground rules. Uh, I would not expect uh, Democrats to have uh, any advantages that they didn't have in the House, despite the president of presence of Chief Justice Roberts. That's my well, inclination. It's I, that one. I'm going to say I would rather wait and see what happens than predict what might happen. Um, I think that's fair to say. And I, th and that's generally the better way to go. Well, I will just tell you, Jill, it, it's been a real pleasure having you on. I mean, you are, like I said, you're, you're so grounded in what happened. Um, you know, you, you know, when you were uh, on the ground doing this, you know, investigating a president for, for criminal wrongdoing. Uh, it's really uh, fantastic to get your perspective here today. So thank you very much. I'm very happy to be on with you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. On Topic.